Thank you very, very much, Mike, for that prayer. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody this morning. Once again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms uh, here today. Uh, if I could have a point of personal privilege, I'd like to wish my own mom a happy uh, Mother's Day. She watches our services uh, from time to time, especially when her eldest is asked to preach. So she's out there this morning uh, down at Litchfield um, and, and joining us for worship. So um, we, uh, we thank God for this opportunity to, uh, to be here and have enjoyed um, this series of studies that we've had uh, in the book of Isaiah. I really appreciate the opportunity the session has given me to uh, share a portion of God's word with you each week. I've really benefited much more from it than I'm sure you have. Um, the Lord's been really good and kind in teaching me so many things, and perhaps even this morning I'd like to, to share some of that. So uh, with that in mind, if you'd go ahead and grab your Bible or uh, the device, whatever you use to get to God's Word, and uh, turn or scroll to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter number 55. Back in January, uh, if you've been with us, and if you haven't, you probably need to know, we embarked on a series of studies from the book of, of Isaiah. Uh, a series of studies that we titled, Behold Your God. We even went out and bought banners uh, to accentuate it all. And um, it's been a great series uh, for months now. We have been looking uh, really at the middle portion of this great book. And today, uh, we're going to land this plane uh, by looking at uh, chapter 55. Before we look at it, let me briefly bring us up to speed on, on where we've been. Uh, in this book. Isaiah uh, was written uh, around 700 BC. Um, he has been prophesying against the idolatry of Judah. He makes some predictions. He predicts that God is going to take this crowd of people off into exile and things are going to get worse before they get better. But God in his goodness is going to deliver them out of exile in Babylon and Isaiah writes this book to give these people hope. It's really a, a very hopeful book. Hope, not in themselves, and certainly not in their circumstances, but hope in the coming Messiah. One whom Isaiah speaks of as being a servant, a suffering servant, who would eventually bring restoration to Israel. A few weeks ago in chapter 53, we learned and saw how Isaiah spoke of this suffering servant, giving us these beautiful, vivid descriptions of the extent of the servant's sufferings. He would be one like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, one who was pierced for our transgressions and who was crushed for our iniquities. Last week in chapter 54, Isaiah reminded us of all the benefits that were paid for by this suffering servant. As he spoke of our Lord's death and of the Redeemer's calling and the way our Redeemer gathers a people with everlasting love and compassion. And so it's with that in mind that we come today to chapter 55. And in it we are offered what I like to think of as a great invitation as well as a great promise. It's an invitation and promise for Israel, but most importantly, 
It's an invitation and promise to us to really receive what is now ours to have. And it's with that in mind that I would direct your attention to Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's not very long, only 13 verses. Hear now um, God's word. Come, everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God. And of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to be empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, this opportunity now to pull up our chairs, if you will, to your Word and to feast upon it. So we ask that you would, by your Spirit, would fill us now. That we would, in fact, read, mark, and learn not for the sake of just gathering information, but that you, by your Spirit, would transform us in our very hearts. For we pray this in your good name, Jesus. Amen. A great invitation in a great promise. Here in verse 1, we are introduced to this great invitation. He says, come to these people and to you and I. 
In fact, he says it four times in that verse. Come, 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 come. Come, God says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come. Now, if there was ever a crowd of people who were thirsty, it had to be this crowd of people. They've been off in exile under very difficult circumstances. Life had been miserable for them in many ways. They'd thirsted after a lot of different things. In addition to that, they were destitute. They were devoid of any kind of money or any kind of means to buy the things that they needed. And it is to those people, to these people, that our Lord comes to them and he says, Come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy wine and milk. There are three things in this text that I'd like for us to think about this morning from this little section of the chapter. And those three things are water, wine, and milk. All of which I would suggest correspond to my and your deepest needs. First of all, there's water. God says, come to the waters. You know, water is mentioned a lot in the Bible. I didn't know this until I was preparing for this, but it's, it's really referenced over 722 times. That's a lot. In fact, that's more times than the words prayer and faith and hope are referenced. It's a lot. It's frequently used as a picture of God pouring out His Spirit upon His people. I was thinking about this this week, and I can't remember if we looked at this or not, but in, in back in Isaiah 44, verse 3, it says this, For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This, of course, is a reference to, to spiritual water. God himself... It should remind us of our Lord's encounter with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Remember the story? The woman comes to the well, and she's, she's seeking to get water. And what does Jesus tell her? I'm the only water that really lasts. I am the only thing that really lasts. She was seeking to satisfy a temporary thirst, a, a, a need, a legitimate need, but... Jesus says, if you want to really have your needs satisfied for the duration, I'm the only one who can do that. Or maybe that text, I think it's in John 7, where Jesus is in the temple, and there are these huge water pots, and lo and behold, they they run out of water. Everybody's freaking out that they've run out of water, and Jesus stands up in the middle of it all and says... Let him who thirsts come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. So the first thing that God calls Israel to is is to to the waters. Come to the waters. He then calls them and offers up to them wine. Now, for an old Southern Baptist boy, that's, uh, that's interesting. You know, wine, I, I'm, I've come to understand over the years, was a common drink of the Jewish people. 
They enjoyed it in meals, and they shared it with friends. It was also an essential part of their worship. It was used when celebrating the Passover in the Old Testament and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. It was also used medicinally to help the weak and the sick. And while it certainly can be abused, and I will be the first to acknowledge that, I don't believe it's going too far to say that God seemed to like wine. Why else would he use it so much? Wine was associated with life and with joy and with God's blessing. And so it is in Judges 9, verse 13, we read that wine is the thing that cheers God and cheers man. In Psalm 104, verse 15, wine is portrayed in a very similar way, where it says wine makes man's heart glad. And if you were to look back in this very book, in chapter 25, wine is used as a picture of, of future joy and of great blessing. And so here's God talking to these people, and he says, look, come to me, you people who thirst, come to me, come to the waters, come, come to the wine, drink it. And then finally, there's milk. I love milk. Nothing beats a glass of milk and a brownie, right? I love milk. But when you go to the scriptures, milk has both good and bad overtones. For instance, in Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 13, here's what it says. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle of, oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Now it seems that the author of Hebrews there, he's, he's bringing a negative connotation to that, right? He's telling, he's talking about people who, who are, they're still being babies, and they're not ready for solid food of the word. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul did when he was talking to the Corinthians. He, he issued a rebuke to them. He says in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are you not of the flesh <laughs> and behaving in a human way? However, Peter uses the word milk in a very positive way. When he writes in 1 Peter 2, verses 2 through 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by you, you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so while the usage of milk in the Bible can have some negative connotations, it's also used in a very positive sense, quite frankly, most of the time. And it typically is a reference to feeding upon the Word of God. And that, my dear friends, is always a very beneficial thing. Now let's take all of those things, water, wine, and milk, and hear this. Hear these people. <laughs> They're thirsty. They are malnourished. 
They're, they're joyless. And here's God coming to these people. Not with a big baseball bat, but here's God coming to these people and say, come back to me. Come, come to me. I and only I can satisfy your thirst. I and only I can provide the nourishment that you need. I and only I can bring true and lasting joy in your life. In other words, what God is saying to these people and to you and I is that I and only I can satisfy your deepest longings. I'm the only one who can do that. In our study of this great book, we know that these, these poor people had they'd been everywhere look for, for satisfaction and to everyone, quite frankly. Hope this doesn't offend anybody, but some of you will know the name Mick Jagger. Who knows the name Mick Jagger? Wow, a lot of you. Um, Mick Jagger was the lead singer, still is, I guess, of the Rolling Stones. Uh, and in 1965, he wrote a song. It was a big hit. He wrote a lot of hits, but. This particular song, the title of it was, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. <laughs> Here's just a little piece of it. And I won't sing it, but he says, when I'm driving in my car, a man comes on the radio. He's telling me more and more about some useless information. Supposed to fire my imagination. So I try. And I try, and I try, but I can't get no, what? Satisfaction. That's where these people were. They just couldn't get any satisfaction. How do we know that? Well, we know it from verse 2. Look at it. God says to them, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you do that? And why do you labor for that which does not, look at this, satisfy? You see, Israel had a real problem running to people and kings and other nations, usually forming alliances with them and entering into covenants with them and pledging their allegiance to them and expecting in return the security and the satisfaction that they craved. And yet in the end, End of the day, when they put their heads on their pillows at night, those alliances that they created with those people failed to satisfy. And in mixed words, they couldn't get any satisfaction. So Isaiah comes to these people and he says, look, don't look to such things. Don't feed yourselves on junk food. It will just leave you sucking for air. It will satisfy for a moment maybe, but it will not last and it will kill you in the end. And you know, he's so right. I love fried fish. I do. I just ate some last couple of days. But if that's all I eat six and seven days a week, not only will I get large, but I'll eventually die. 
I'll clog up every, clog up every artery in my body. It's just not good for me, right? That's kind of what he's saying here. He's saying, look, you people have been, you've been filling your, your mind and your stomach and your whole life with stuff that just, just won't deliver for you. Stop doing that. Come. 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 Delight yourself in me. Delight yourself in me. He then says something really strange. And, and, and it sounds even contradictory. He says, come and, and buy. Come buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's weird. How can you buy something if you don't have anything to pay for it with? How can you do that? Only when somebody else pays the price for it. I experienced this just this past Friday. Just finished a round of golf, and I went into the clubhouse, and I wanted uh, something cool to drink. They had two options, Pepsi and Diet Mountain Dew. I don't care for Pepsi, so I opted for the Mountain Dew. Popped it open, walked over to the desk uh, to pay for the Mountain Dew, and took a swig out of it. Guys on the other side of the desk took a swig out of it, running my hand in my pocket, and guess what? I didn't have any money. I'd spent all the money on the round, and I just miscalculated that. And so I look at the guy, and I said, you know, man, I'm really sorry, but I, I, don't, I can't, I don't have any money. He didn't say anything. He just looked at me, and I stood there and I looked at him. It's kind of this standoff thing. And I thought, man, I'm going to get incarcerated in Kershaw, South Carolina, over a dollar and 25 cents. You know what happened? Somebody over on the other side of the room said, hey, hey, boss man, you know you're getting older when people say that to you. I got it. And he walked over and he plopped down the dollar and 25 cents. And everybody was happy that the drink had been paid for. Now, why do I tell that story? What Isaiah is saying with those words, what Isaiah is saying is what I am holding out to you, that is myself, what I'm offering has been paid for by my servant, Jesus Christ. It's already been paid for. You don't have to pay for it. Jesus has done that for you. And so here's God. He's, he's offering himself to these people. He's offering himself to, to us. And he invites us to come. But he invites us to come, I would suggest to you this morning, not just any old way. But he invites us to come with great humility. Look at the middle of, of part of verse 3, if you would. He says, listen diligently, I'm sorry, verse 2, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What's God doing with those words? 
He's inviting them into a relationship with himself. They had tried to make covenants with everybody, but God now says, no, come, make covenant with me. You, you tried making covenants with other kings, and you see where that got you. Now come and, and engage me, and be engaged by me. Listen, he says, diligently to me. Hear me. Incline your ear to me. But you know what? They wouldn't do it. For you see, in many ways, they had gotten into their heads somehow that they knew better than God, that they were smarter than God, they were wiser than God, they knew how things should be and how their lives should go. How do we know that? Because look at verse 8 and 9. There Isaiah says, or God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Your thoughts and your ways, he's talking about. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, they thought they knew better than God. Now we look at that now and we say, well, how in the world can anybody possibly think like that? Well, let me tell you something. We do it every day. Are there not times when we look at God's Word, for instance, we read it, and we say, well, that's well and good, but God, you don't really know my situation. You don't know my circumstances. It's just real complicated, God. And you, you, you just don't get it. So, so let me help you get it. Then here's what we do. We begin to define or interpret our situations and circumstances and problems for God. And we tell him, maybe not verbally, but at least in our minds, we tell him how we think things need to work out. We try to inform him. God won't be informed. <laughs> He's God. And we're not. What Isaiah wants us to see here is that you can trust God. You, you can literally take him at his word. Look at verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read them again. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see what he's doing there? Look what he says in verse 3 one more time. He says, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Here Isaiah wants us to see that God's love and God's commitment to us are, are really unchangeable. And that was good news for these people. For you see, it's very possible, even, even likely, that these people to whom Isaiah is speaking may have been tempted to think that the destruction of Jerusalem was, and being carted off into exile were signs that God had forgotten his covenant with them. And now they're sitting around wondering, does he really and truly care? We've messed up, but does he 
how long suffering is his long suffering. Sometimes we can think like that, can't we? We read and mark and learn the Bible and sometimes like Paul says, the things that we know we should do, we don't, and the things that we don't do, we should, and the things that we don't want, we do the very things we hate, and we think God looks at us and says, okay, three strikes, you're out. Enough's enough, I'm done with you. And yet here's God saying, no, that's not the way I roll. And let me show you why. In verse 3, God is saying, look, I made a pledge to David. Saul failed, so I replaced him with David, and I promised David that his rule would be forever. You say, well, big deal. That's David. What's that mean for me? It means everything. Let me tell you why. Jesus Christ is the heir of David. Our Lord, our Savior is the heir of David. It means a big deal. Here's what Ray Ortland said about this verse. He said, our salvation is more than a decision we made in time. It flows from a covenant made in eternity. And the Father delights to keep his covenant with his beloved Son by drawing us into the everlasting love of the triune Godhead. He directs our attention constantly away from ourselves to the messianic figure ordained for our salvation. What's Isaiah saying here to us even this morning, God cannot, God will not back on his covenant agreements. It is, as he says here, an eternal covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. He goes on to say of this messianic figure, Isaiah says in verses 4 and 5, Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the peoples. You shall call a nation that you don't know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. What's he seeing there? Isaiah sees nations eagerly and enthusiastically running to Jesus. He's trying to instill hope in these people, and he's trying to instill hope in you and I. And so here he is. Uh, he's God saying, I've made this covenant with you. I haven't reneged on it. I haven't forgotten it. I haven't backed up from it. And he's almost, the idea is, then why, why don't you just enjoy what you have in me? Why don't you, why don't you just relish what you have in me? Why don't they do that? Why don't we? Why don't we sometimes just rest in the gospel? We have the answer in verse 7. Because we're more like Israel than we realize. Because like them, we're wicked and we're unrighteous. What made these people so wicked and unrighteous? One word, idolatry. It was John Calvin, I do believe, who famously wrote in his Institutes that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And he's right. Anything can become an idol. But typically, it's ourselves and our longing for satisfaction. And in doing this, 
we make ourselves God and like these people, shut out the living God. Can I tell you how I myself do this very thing? Because I stand before you this morning to confess to you that I identify with this, and let me tell you why. I have an idolatrous heart. I have many idols. And one of my idols is fear. You know what I'm afraid of? Not you. I'm afraid of failure. I strive for flawlessness. I strive for perfection. In fact, I demand it in myself and worst of all, oftentimes in others. When my demands, my demands for perfection go unmet, I typically form an opinion about myself or perhaps about the one who is not meeting that standard. And unless I'm careful, if you don't give me what I want, which in my case is flawless performance, I'll strike at you by pointing out your sins and your failures. Oftentimes, I, like these people, am filled with unbelief. I just don't believe God's enough. I need God plus something else. I need my idol to be fed. That might set some of you back. Because you expect guys like me to have it all together. And I don't. Desperately need the gospel. I desperately need Jesus. But could it be that the reason that makes you a little uncomfortable is because it puts you in a position where you have to look at some of your potential idols? Joe Carter is a guy who writes for the Gospel Coalition. And... Um, he puts together a couple of questions that I think are very helpful to us all about identifying our idols. Let me give you a couple of them. He asks, for instance, what do you daydream about? When your mind wanders, is it to material goods like fishing boats and exotic vacations or to intangible items such as the fame of celebrity or the approval of your peers? How do you feel when God doesn't respond to your prayers in the way that you wanted? Do you trust that he knows best or do you become angry and bitter? Have there been unanswered prayers that have made you doubt God's goodness or made you want to turn away from him? What person do you love the most? What person do you want most to please? Do you have friendships or romantic attachments that lead you away from God? What do you worry about? What makes you most anxious? What do you most fear losing? Listen to this one. If you have a time machine and could travel into either the past or the future, what would you use it to change? What makes you nostalgic? What are your biggest regrets? What do you most want to happen in the future? What would cause you to despair? 
if it didn't come to pass? And here's the problem with those questions. A lot of those things, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with them. But when they become the penultimate thing in our lives, they have become idolatrous. And I would argue that they distance us from God, that we shove him off, we try to, and we try to feed our idol. Or we try to do them both. It's gotten really quiet in here. You say, well, what do you do about that? Let me tell you what we typically do. We try to just do better. Well, I'm going to stop being such a perfectionist. But we quickly realize (laughs) we can't do that. So I love what Keller says. Tim Keller says this, the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true God, the living God. He is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying in this passage. Isaiah is mercifully saying to these people and to you and I, he is calling us to abandon our evil and atrocious ways. And he's saying this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Return to the Lord. There are a couple of things going on there. There's first this idea of turning that Keller speaks of. You see it here, don't you? Turning away from something and turning toward God and delighting in Him. There's also this idea of urgency. Seek, call, return, while He may be found, while He is near. And finally, this is the best part. I love this part. It's the reception that we're promised when we as struggling sinners, struggling idolaters, come home to Jesus. When we return to Him, what are we met with? Look at it. Compassion and assurance of pardon. We get grace. One of my favorite movies of all times, and I get ribbed about this, is Legends of the Fall. I know in a lot of places it's dark and it's depressing. But if you haven't seen it, it's about a father played by Anthony Hopkins, and he has two sons, one of which is played by Brad Pitt, who plays the character Tristan. Tristan's a complicated guy. He's a convoluted soul. He feels stifled by his father and brother's world, so he leaves home and he begins to search for meaning in life. And it's a tough, sordid life that he lives. But one day, he decides to come home. And if you've seen the movie, you know it's, it's, it's a beautiful scene. As Tristan rides in on this gorgeous animal, and he's leading this herd of horses into their property, and as the horses come in, the fence of the family and family members swing wide the gate so the horses can come in, and Tristan, being Brad Pitt, jumps off the horse, and they're slapping each other on the back and telling each other how good it is to see them all, and Brad Pitt says, where's father? And he begins to yell out for his father, and He walks over to the porch of the house, and out comes Colonel Ludlow, who is played by Anthony Hopkins. He's older, and he's he's had a stroke even. 
But he walks over and he plops down in a chair and he motions to one of his co-workers. He does this. In other words, he wants to, he wants to celebrate that his boy is home. And then writing on a chalkboard, he can't speak. He looks at his long-lost son, Tristan, and he writes on the chalkboard, happy. I, I, I get choked up every time I watch that scene. Because, here's why. It's such a beautiful picture of what awaits us when we come home to Jesus. It's such a beautiful picture. What do we get? Compassion and assurance of pardon. And we get joy. <laughs> Look at verses 12 and 13. You'll go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Some commentators say his words here are a reference to Israel's return from Babylon. They may be. Still others see it as an, in an eschatological way, just way out into the future. But here's one thing I do know that we learn from this passage. Our God is a welcoming God. He takes great joy in sinners coming to Him and pouring out His love and mercy and forgiveness and compassion to have our sins forgiven and to enjoy the peace of being restored into a right relationship with God. It just doesn't get any better than that. We get grace, and God gets the glory in it, which begs this question. Have you been to him? Some of you may be sitting here today in a crowd this size, and you're thinking, you know, I've never been once to him. I never realized until a day that I even needed him. I've seen myself as a pretty good guy, but if this is right, I may have some stuff going on that I'm, I'm not, I could give a rip less about God. It could be that God's just showing you some of that. I don't know. But maybe you need to get with somebody and have a conversation about that today. Still others of us are here, and we've, we came to him many, many years ago, but as we've gotten deeper, deeper into the Christian life, we've begun to see that We've got stuff in our hearts, and it ain't pretty. Same God invites us to come to him with that and just drop it at his feet and let him deal with us. He is faithful. He is compassionate, and he will welcome us. Would you come to him and enjoy him even this day? Let's pray, shall we?